from the EBKV studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you're listening to Flyers AD on Brotherly Pod with your hosts, Anthony DeMarco and Daniel Lesh. Everybody, welcome to Flyers AD. It is uh, Wednesday, May twentieth, twenty twenty, and uh, not gonna review any seasons this time. Obviously, if you've been listening to Flyers AD over the past uh, month or two, we've been reviewing each Flyers season individually. But over that time, we were talking just Flyers. We're gonna go back. And talk about some cup winners in this time. Mainly the dynasty teams of Chicago, Pittsburgh. Uh, We're going to touch upon Detroit and possibly even the Kings as well. But uh, before we get into that, uh, Anthony's here as always. Anthony, how you doing? Not too bad, man. How are you surviving quarantine? Oh, you know, I'm doing pretty well. There's a bird right outside this window and it's fucking driving me nuts. been playing with this audio ever since we uh, sat down here to try and... Make sure it doesn't get in the background, but hopefully you can't hear it. But, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the uh, dynasty teams. Chicago, obviously, they won 10, uh, 2010, 2013, 2015. Pittsburgh, 2009, 2016, 2017. Uh, the, the Red Wings were competitive for fucking years they won 97 98 02 and 08 and then the kings were obviously 2012 and 2014 and um a lot of people equate the flyers to an upcoming dynasty and it's always been something that really really bothers me because i don't think it's that simple you know they go oh, you know even going back a couple years you know well you know, there has Sandheim's going to come up and Frost and Faraby are going to be here. And they're going to be great. And this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And they're just going to win. And the idea that just because they tanked for a certain number of years that they're automatically going to win kind of really drives me nuts. I remember I ranted, pardon me, about this a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago on the show, whenever it was, uh, during one of the reviews about this. You know, a lot of people just assume the Flyers are going to win. But reality of the situation is, yeah. The Blackhawks have been great. The Penguins have been great. But how many teams in the last decade didn't win that were, you know, uh, the Nashville Predators got there. You know, the Rangers earlier in the decade were good. You know, the Lightning just had the fucking single best season in NHL history and they got booted in the first round by the fucking Blue Jackets of all teams. You know, just because you build what you think is a competitive roster through drafting and development doesn't guarantee you winning a Stanley Cup. And that's always kind of what the biggest issue I had, especially with the end of the Ron Hextall era, where he just wanted to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait because he didn't seem to have that killer instinct that you need in order to build teams like Chicago and Pittsburgh. You see, the thing with dynasties is that they're built around core stars. And that's the most important thing. Like we're talking about Chicago, you have Kate, uh, Kane and Taze, and I would even throw Duncan Keith into that mix. You have Pittsburgh, Crosby, Malkin, and possibly Latang into that mix. Detroit Red Wings in the late '90s, early 2000s. You know, you had the, you had Iserman and Shanahan and Fedorov and Lidstrom and all these guys. And you know, 
maybe the Flyers don't have the same level of stars, but they still do have Claude Giroux, who is one of the most underrated players of the decade or the generation. You have Jakub Voracek, who certainly has had flashes where he has played like a star. But the problem is, is that when you're building a dynasty like the Penguins or the Blackhawks, it's about lining up these stars with the talent that you've drafted. And what's happened with the Flyers here in the past couple of years is like, oh, hell yeah, they've drafted a bunch of young and upcoming talent, you know, in Sanheim, Provorov and Konechny, or more recently, uh, Morgan Frost and Joel Farabee. And this is all good and true, but like, is it going to line up while Claude Giroux is still playing like a star? Is it going to line up while Jakub Voracek is still playing like a star? Like, for God's sakes, we saw Wayne Simmons' prime, like, come and go during this, I guess you could call it a rebuild of the Philadelphia Flyers. So it is very possible that the Claude Giroux years or the Jakub Voracek years do not line up coincidentally with the primes of Frost and Farabee. But when we see dynasties like Detroit or more recently Pittsburgh and Chicago, it is all about timing. And you you could bet your bottom dollar that a lot of the players that the Flyers have drafted in the last five or six years will be good players. But will they line up coincidentally with the players that are existing superstars in the NHL? It's kind of been the issue, and we really saw this year. You know, Claude Giroux is 32, and he kind of slowed down. You know, how much longer does Jake Voracek left have as a competitive player, or have left as a competitive player, I should say? And, I mean, even realistically, Sean Couturier's 27. You know, his clock is starting to tick as far as, you know, his peak. I'm sure he's got, you know, three, maybe four more years before we see any kind of uh, decline in him, but still that you're putting limits on your top guys because you waited so goddamn long so that all of your prospects can ideally get here. But it was something that, you know, it doesn't take much to look at their roster and go, okay, you got, you know, uh, a lot of these guys are in the early twenties, but the core the veterans of this team are in their, you know, early thirties. You know, a lot of that doesn't line up and it, it really there's so uh, the killer instinct, I think, was the one thing that Hextall lacked. And adding players from the outside, his refusal, I should say, to add players from the outside, really did him in. You know, you go back to Chicago, you know, you had Kane, Taves, Crawford, Keith, and Seabrook that were there. But they went out, they added Marion Hosa and Andrew Ladd, and Nate, uh, later Nick Letty and Michael Hanzus. The Pits, uh, Penguins added Miroslav Shatan, Chris Kunitz, Hal Gill, Sergei Gonchar. Going back to the fucking Red Wings, they added Sergei Fedorov, Chris Draper, Luke Robitaille, Brandon Shanahan, you know, the Kings, Richards, Carter, Williams, Gagne, Marion Gabrick. You know, they had, they were not afraid to go out there. They sensed their team were was on the brink of doing something great, and they went out there and they found a supporting cast to make it happen, to build around the players that they drafted. Not just sit here and draft and hope every single player that they drafted becomes a star. It's a pretty simple process, really, that Ron Hextall just didn't seem to understand. Well, the thing is, is that people forget, and I'll use the Chicago Blackhawks from 2010 as an example, is that maximizing the art of drafting 
has to do with taking advantage of the entry-level contracts, which the Chicago Blackhawks did in 2010. You know, Kane and Taze were on their entry-level deals. That is what afforded them to bring in the Andrew Ladds and the Brian Campbells and I'm off the top of my head, the Chris Ball Hueys, who didn't actually play in the playoffs, but he was signed to a pretty big contract before that season. But it's about maximizing the years, that three-year window of the entry-level deals. And I remember talking to Bill Meltzer about it, and obviously we had him on a couple weeks ago. And he told me one of the things about the Ron Hextall era that will always be tainted a bit is the fact that the entry-level years of Travis Sanheim and Ivan Provorov and Travis Konechny were kind of wasted away with rebuilding years. Like, those guys came in in 16-17. Sanheim came in a year later in 17-18 and still spent a lot of time with the Phantoms. And 7-18 in particular, as we reviewed two weeks ago, was a year where the Flyers knocked on the door of contention. They finished third in the Metro. Giroux had over 100 points. Gosses Beer had over 60 points. Voracek had a great year. It was the breakout year offensively for Sean Couturier. But what happened? They had a lot of cap space in those years because Ivan Provorov was making under a mill. Ditto for Travis Konechny and Travis Sanheim. But Ron Hexel did not capitalize on that cap space and use it to add. And that's what teams like the Pittsburgh Penguins did and the Chicago Blackhawks did, and the LA Kings did, and it was way before my time, but I would assume that the Detroit Red Wings did, especially given the fact that there was no salary cap when they completely peaked in the late 90s. So I think that is a frustrating thing that, yeah, for sure, the Flyers have drafted great players over the last six, seven years, but at the same time, are they able? Are they going to be able to maximize these players, given the fact that they wasted the entry-level deals of their contracts? Now, I understand that they still have Joel Farabee and Morgan Frost and Cam York in the future, future who are selling their entry-level deals, but it still is worth talking about that, you know, Ivan Provorov and Travis Konechny, they only really start being maximized by adding additions from outside the organization after they were signed to their main level NHL contracts. And it really, I mean, financially speaking, this team's going to be in trouble in a couple of years. And uh, they, they kind of wasted, like you said, the, the, the nice entry level contracts that a lot of these guys were on, you know, Carter Hart's up next summer, you know, Myers is up this summer. Uh, let's see here. Sandheim's uh, uh, bridge deal is the word I'm looking for. Over is over in 21. You know, Joel Faraby is still in his ELC, but that's, you know, he's got there. But then you got Couturier in 22, Giroux in 22. And you look down here in IR, you know, Patrick and Lindblom are still around, you know, and theoretically, if they both come back, they will be deserving of contracts at some point. So it's going to, the cap is going to get very tight, very quick. Now, the thing there is there is a good portion of this team that is relatively young and it's kind of like this next wave of players. So, you know, even if they don't match up with the Giroux and the Voracek and the Couturier and they can't quite get the job done, hopefully it doesn't put them in a tailspin as much as it does. There's enough talent here to kind of push on from Giroux, Voracek and Couturier. But that's asking a whole lot because Giroux's, 
shoes are not going to be easy to fill. I know a lot of people want to think that fucking Morgan Frost is the next Claude Drew, but that's just not going to happen. But uh, it, it's definitely going to be interesting. If they can't get the job done in the next two or three years, what ends up happening here? Well, it's a scary thing to look at because when you look at Ron Hextel's philosophy or his game plan, I feel like when they won the second overall pick in 2017, he put a lot of eggs in that basket. He said, okay, so we got either Nolan Patrick or Nico Heischer guaranteed. They ended up getting the former. So therefore, we can bank on this guy to t- overtake Claude Giroux, and we could afford to lose Braden Shen and all these things. And now, granted, they have drafted Morgan Frost right directly after Joel, uh, directly after Nolan Patrick. But at the same time, like people cannot dispute the fact that Ron Hextall put a lot of eggs in the basket of Nolan Patrick. And since then, Nolan Patrick has proven to be average, I would say, at best in terms of prospects given his age and injury prone. And that's a scary prospect to think about because now you're really looking to Morgan Frost as, okay, this guy has to be the end-all be-all or we're in big trouble, like you just alluded to. Like, what is the Philadelphia Flyers post-Claude Giroux? And it's kind of frightening because obviously we have people projecting Morgan Frost to be the next coming of Jesus Christ. And he very well could be. Like, I think Morgan Frost has the potential to be a first-line center in the NHL one day. But at the same time, I wouldn't be shocked if he was just an everyday second-line center, if you know what I mean. And it's kind of frightening because beyond Morgan Frost, given the Nolan Patrick injury concerns, there isn't a whole lot to be optimistic about. Like, yeah, of course you have Joel Farabee, but we all know that the NHL is a league driven by the centerized position. If we're talking about the heir to Jakub Voracek's position, I would have no doubt, like, assuming that Joel Farabee will live up to Jakub Voracek's level of play. Hell, I wouldn't even be surprised if Joel Farabee surpasses Jakub Voracek strictly in terms of consistency. Because, excuse me, I think Joel Farabee proved that to us, unlike Morgan Frost did, that he will be a star at his position early on in his career. But as I just mentioned, it's a driven league up the middle of the ice. And I think it's a real area of concern that the Flyers are relying on Morgan Frost to be the heir apparent to Claude Giroux and a lot of the other centers that they were highly banking on to translate to something in the NHL, like Mikhail Vorobiev and German Rubsov and Jay O'Brien, even though he is only two years shy of being drafted the NHL, haven't really promised a whole lot. It just seems like every time a prospect comes in, they're the fucking next greatest thing. They're the next Wayne Gretzky, you know? Where do we, Travis Konechny and Provorov. And while they're both very good players, you know, this is not, uh, you know, Crosby and fucking Bobby Orr here. You know, they're, they're, they're very good, but they're not <laughs> the best. They don't carry the goddamn I don't know. And then you get now we have Farabee and Frost. And again, in time, will they be good players? Absolutely. Probably. Maybe. But will they be Claude Giroux? And I don't think so. And uh, listen, there's three ways to, 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 there's three steps to building a goddamn team drafting, 
additions, and maintaining. You know, and the Flyers got the drafting part down. Now it's time to start trading some of those pieces. And I, the fan, these fans are going to lose their shit when you mention trading draft picks and prospects. But you got to do that because you got to start bringing in your Marion Hosas, your Chris Kunitz, your Sergei Fedorovs, you know, your, your Carter and Richards. You got to make that push because now you're fact against the wall. Your back is against the wall here. And they kind of did that this offseason with Kevin Hayes. He was a much bigger addition than he was even projected to be, you know, as far as his impact on the team. So you can't see that. But right now in this coming summer and if and when the offseason happens or, you know, whatever the hell is going on there. But it's time to start making the big boy additions. You have more than enough. Nothing happened in prospects here. You have a whole goddamn phantoms roster full of them. It's time to start making those trades and bringing in the veterans and bringing in the players that are going to make the big push. And they really didn't do that at the trade deadline this year. They brought in a couple guys, mainly because the roster was firing on all cylinders when the trade deadline came around and they got uh, Grant and Thompson there as the veteran depth guys. Cause they really didn't need anybody uh, as far as, you know, when the roster was firing this before JVR got hurt and all this shit. So, but in the future, you know, the drafting's done. Your core of the team is here. You have so many goddamn young kids that are going to take the next step. It's time to start making the additions. And luckily, Chuck Fletcher's here, not Ron Hextall, because I trust Chuck Fletcher to make those decisions a lot more than I ever would Hextall. So I'll bring it up to you, Dan, because I kind of brought up to Bill Meltzer in passing when we had him on a few weeks back. But, like, Let's take a guy like Alex Petrangelo, who is arguably a top five defenseman in the entire NHL and would surely gain at a bare minimum an eight million dollar a year contract that, well, I guess it'd be seven years if he was signing with a team outside the organization. Let's just say hypothetically the Flyers were to sign Alex Petrangelo, they would probably more likely than not use a lose a player of value in the coming years. Maybe that's Travis Sanheim. Maybe that's Phil Myers. I don't really want to comment on Nolan Patrick or Oscar Lindblom because of their respective health concerns. But let's say maybe a, oh, I don't know, Nick Abe-Kubel. Would, if that was a possible deal on the table for you, if you were Chuck Fletcher, would you entertain it? Would you sign it without, without a doubt? Would you reject it? How would you approach it? If I had to sign Alex Petrangelo and then the process lose Myers or Sanheim, I would do that in a friggin' heartbeat because Petrangelo is worth it. You know, it's not every day a top guy comes in. I believe he's 29 or 30, so he's still young enough where he can you know, handle that role for a little while. And listen, I have expressed my love-hate relationship with both Sanheim and Myers in the past, and I'm not really going to, to bury them respectively right now. But at the end of the day, you know, they may be great, but they're still working on it. And again, it's about fitting the time frame. Petrangelo would immediately make that jump better. You know, Ivan Provorov and Alex Petrangelo on the top pair. You got, uh, let's say they get rid of Myers. You got Sanheim and Niskanen on the second pair. And then and then Braun and Haig on the third pair. Like, that's a quality, quality defenseman. You know, that would immediately improve your entire defense core. And could play all the roles. And think back to 2010, uh, 2009, rather, with, with Chris Pronger. And, you know, the immediate impact that he brought to that team because he was just far and away better than everybody else. And that would kind of be the situation I was in. So, yes, I would absolutely sign Petrangelo if it meant losing Myers or Sanheim. Well, I'm I'm happy you brought up Pronker because that's where I was going with this after. Because I remember in 
June of 2009, watching the NHL draft. And the Flyers traded for Chris Pronger, I believe, before the first selection was made, which was Taylor Hall by the... uh, No, I'm lying. It was John Tavares in 2009. And I ask you, like, given the fact of what the Flyers traded for Pronger at the time, two first-round picks, Joffrey Lupo and Lucas Biza, who was a year away from being drafted, I believe it was 18th overall in 2008, It's a two-part question because, A, how do you think the current Flyers fan base or Flyers Twitter, if you will, would react to a Chris Pronger-like trade? And how could you relate it to the current-day Philadelphia Flyers and what they need to push the team forward into legitimate cup contention? Can you imagine Flyers Twitter if they... Let's use Petrangelo as a reference because he's a relatively similar player. They traded a 25 goal scorer, a defensive prospect, and two first round picks for Alex Petrangelo. This fan base would lose their shit. And first of all, it'd be glorious to watch the meltdown. But I mean, realistically speaking, it's what you got to do because it makes you competitive. You know, and and this is where the the Ron Hextall disciples are still alive and well because they're afraid to make that kind of move, right? Well, it's not the time, Daniel. It's not the time. We can't do it now, Daniel. It has to be in a couple years. We're not ready. But reality of the situation is you're ready right now. You know, you're ready this season. If they, you know, if they went for it last summer and they, you know, brought in Alex Petrangelo last summer and you added him to the team this year, holy shit, you know, that would be a, a legitimate powerhouse fucking team right here. So it's just a matter of taking that next step within the organization. And again, you can't just assume, well, Cam York's going to come up and be the next Eric Carlson and carry them. Because you don't know that yet because he's never played a fucking professional game. Same goes for Zumala and, and all these people that, that we champion these mediocre prospects. And again, they, one day they may be good, but they're just they're 19-year-old kids who have never played a pro game and we're calling them fucking you know, Calder Cup winning... Ah, it drives me nuts, but yes, I would absolutely do that trade. Flyers Twitter meltdown would be glorious, and as, as a comparison goes, Lucas Spiza would probably rack up to, I don't know, maybe Wyatt Wiley, maybe? I don't know if he's quite on par with Zumala. And 25-goal score. Did the Flyers even have a 25-goal scorer this year? I feel like they didn't, but... Uh, no, they <laughs> um, Flyers stats. I'm actually curious now. I think it'd, probably be a, it'd probably be a JVR player. <laughs> Connect need 24 goals. Kevin Hayes, 23. Couturier, 22. Giroux, uh, Giroux, 21. And JVR, 19. So nobody even broke 25 goals. Granted, there were a dozen games left in the season before the world went to hell. But even that, like you know, you're, you're trading a, a big offensive contributor there. Like, I don't know. I, I, I They could do it. And it would be great if they did it because it would mean that they're ready to contend. But I don't know. It's a trade that you don't usually see in this day and age anymore. Usually when you see veterans traded away, you get, you know, the uh, Phil Kessel trade of a bunch of dudes highlighted with, you know, one semi-decent prospect, you know, and something along those lines. So I don't know what that trade would look like in modern day. Why do you think 
the current fan base is so scared of a deal like this. Because they bought into Ron Hextall's, I don't want to trade a prospect for a 35-year-old mentality. You know, they were told for years that making bad trades is bad and it's going to cripple the fan base and and this and that, and they're never going to recover. Because it's just what Ron Hextall preached for years and years and years. And we've talked about how good Ron Hextall was with trades. You know, he won just about every single trade that he took part of, handedly. You know, and, and if you go out there and you trade a Chris Pronger, who was, you know, 34 or 35, for you know, a 25 goal score, a top defensive prospect in two first round picks. That's a lot, you know? And the reality is if that was Petrangelo and you do that same trade now, is it a win? I don't know. Maybe not. If those first round picks became something, but at the end of the day, we've talked about this before with Braden Shen. Do you think St. Louis gives one fucking shit that Frost and Farabee are not on in St. Louis right now? Probably not. Why? Because they've got a Stanley cup. You know, and that's what it comes down to for me is if you find a player that's going to help you win the cup, who gives a shit about a prospect or two, right? I agree with you, you know, tenfold here because I think people, well, we've talked about this on air, off air, no matter which way you slice it, that I think people overvalue what Frost and Farabee is. And I look at this Flyers team and there's a part of me that is hopeful for the, for the future probably the majority of me is hopeful for the future, but there's also a part of me that kind of mourns for the lost years of Wayne Simmons. Like to me, to to me, the fact that they wasted Wayne Simmons as a hockey player, forget the years in Philadelphia, but as a hockey player, they wasted Wayne Simmons is just an absolute farce. And then, you could even make the case for Claude Giroux or Yakov Voracek. And that's where, like, I bring back to the whole dynasty topic is that for you, Dan, you look at this team and you've seen, fuck, for the past seven years, a team graced with Giroux and Voracek and Simmons and Shen and Sean Couturier at times, more in the later stages of his career. And do you think that, A, do you, do you see these core players that's, that are left in Couturier, Voracek, and Giroux, being able to sustain a level of play that is quality enough to challenge for a comp while having the the additions of Frost and Farabees and, let's say, Yorks and the progressions of Abe Kubels and all these guys contribute to legitimate Stanley Cup contention. It's an interesting take it, it i don't think people you know as much as people like to say that you know oh Claudio is not underrated anymore like he absolutely is if you take him away from this group right now even in his declining state this team would be lost you know and and it's just between you know his iron man status of he hasn't missed a game in years and, and all this crap is just he brings so much to the table that you don't even notice most nights and i think without him it's going to be difficult and there's nobody, no matter what fucking Dan Silver says, there's nobody that's going to fill Claude Giroux's shoes in this team right now. And that's why it's so important to capitalize on him in the next, you know, arguably next summer, if you would really want to get that far and, and make this happen as quick as possible. You know, this idea that these people are going to be around forever just isn't true. 
I mean, we've already seen, you know, Giroud decline it, and maybe it's not permanent. Maybe it is an injury or he had his first child or, you know, whatever the case was. There may be more going on here than that, but at the end of the day, he's 32. You know, he's not going to get any better. You know, it's just going to get worse from here. And can they do this without him? I don't know. And there's no legitimate superstars in the making that are following him. And given that they're going to draft, you know, in the 20th pick or higher this year, that's not, you know, they're not going to find one in the draft. It's not like Lafreniere is going to come here and save the goddamn day, you know? So it's an interesting question as far as what happens there. But I mean, as far as Wayne Simmons goes, you know, wasted. The guy had 29 goals, 28 goals, 32, 31, 24 with 60 points, 50 points, 60 points, 54, 46. Like, you wasted one of the best power forwards of our era on the best contract in the NHL through most of that time. And you have nothing to show for it. 2012 through 2019. Nothing. That was the fucking absolute doldrum of the Philadelphia Flyers existence. And you have nothing to show for it. And you can fit Claude Giroux in there. Granted, he was around a little earlier for the for the cup run in uh, 2010. But uh, fuck. You just wasted this guy. And you wasted this core. And now you have another core coming in. That just doesn't seem like they're going to be as good. And certainly not right away. You know, it takes these guys a couple years to get going. How many years did it take, you know, Claude Giroux to be a bonafide star? I mean, you could see flashes of it when he was a rookie and very early on. But, I mean, he didn't have his breakout year really until his third or fourth season. We had 94, uh, 93 points in, in 2011-12. He was three and a half years and into that point. You know, it takes time for this kind of stuff to happen. So I don't know when we talk about this timeline adding up, it's something I've you know talked about on brotherly pod basically since the show started what year and a half, two years ago it is just this timeline is not adding up here and, and something's going to have to give sooner or later one way or the other, whether they, you know, go past Claude Giroux's prime and they have to try again with this younger group and hope that in 10 years from now, when, you know, Frost and Farabee and, and York and all these guys are in there, you know, late 20s, early 30s, that they have the veteran power to make it happen. Or you have to cash in right now and do whatever you got to do over the next two or three years to get through that cup while he still can bring something to the team. And no matter if that means trading first round picks and in draft picks and getting it done, then you just got to do it. Well, you look at the team right now and despite guys like Provorov and Sandheim and Konechny and I guess you could lump Hag and Obey Kubel into this mix. Graduating to the NHL roster, they still have a good group of prospects in Frost, and I guess you could kind of count Farabee and Zipmula and Lazinski and all these guys who fucking people rave over. Do you think the best course of action here is for the for Chuck Fletcher and the Philadelphia Flyers to capitalize immediately and add to this team? to try and maximize the final years of Claude Giroux and Jakub Voracek. And to your point, maybe Sean Couturier as well. Or would it be best to try and, you know, just wait and wait and wait and, you know, sign guys like Farabee and Frost to big-time contracts and only make significant additions when they are ready to be impactful players in the NHL? If Frost and Farabee showed me something this year that I said, that's the guy, you know, that's the guy that's going to replace Giroux, maybe I wouldn't be so steadfast on making something happen immediately. But quite frankly, they haven't. They have not. Maybe, again, maybe one day they will. Maybe Farabee and Frost will be, you know, top guys in the future. 
I think Fairby may end up being much better than Frost is down the line. But again, you know, this is a guy that spent most of the season on the fourth line. It's just, it's hard to sit here right now and say, these are the guys, you know, or really even Konechny for that matter. I think Konechny is a very, very good hockey player. But at this point in his career, he's still a complimentary guy. You know, would he be the same player if he was not riding Couturier and Giroux all season long? I don't know. You know, reality is the style he plays is more of a a second, third line kind of guy. You know, then he's just got a hell of a shot along with that. You know, the the kind of the the edgy physical style that he plays. They need to, in my book, and I've always been this way, you know, maybe that's because I grew up, you know, a Flyers fan and, and have been around this team, you know, in the early 2000s before there was a salary cap, you know, when they were just trading things and making it happen and yeah, they never won, and yeah, they never had any fucking draft picks, but they were always in the playoffs. They were always competitive. They were always pushing to make things happen. And I would much rather do that every year than sit here and have $10 million in cap space in 50 fucking first-round picks, you know, all these top prospects. It's just not worth it. You know, I would much rather watch good hockey and make things happen right now, and if they don't get it, at least you can say you tried, than sit here and just pray to whatever God above there is that Farabee and Frost are your answers in 10 years from now. So then where do you think the devotion comes from, from people who legitimately think in their heart of hearts that Frost and Farabee and Zamula and York and Bobby Brink and all these guys will be better, will be as good, if not better than Giroux, Provorov, and Yakov Voracek. Like, where, where is it that people find this belief to just think that there's an endless supply of elite-level prospects? Well, they drink too much of their own Kool-Aid is what's going on. You know, you have the Dan Silvers of the world and the Charlie O'Connors and all these fucking people that claim to be draft experts, you know, that that put their own prospects on a pedestal above everybody else. And, you know, when the when the world uh, world uh, world juniors happened this year and York was the seventh guy and Brink was on the third line and these people are freaking out because, oh, they need to be better. They need to be higher than that. They're so much better. Like like there are no other players in the world, no other prospects for any team. They all suck. It's only the Flyers. Right. And, and, And you drink so much for your own goddamn Kool-Aid that guys like Zamula and Wiley and York and Brink and Frost and all these fucking people that have been talked up for so long because they had good junior careers that they just immediately think they come in to be pros and are going to take the world by storm. When in reality, those players are very, very few and far between. You know, if it was, if everybody was a world beater, then there would be more fucking world beaters out there. But there's not, you know, Crosby does not grow on trees. Hell, Claude Giroux don't grow on trees, you know. And when you're so convinced that everybody fucking is going to be great and then they come into the NHL and they're not, and you compare them to fucking, you know, when you compare Morgan Frost to Claude Giroux after two NHL games, you know, you you, you drink your own Kool-Aid, dude. You are in... Uh, what's it in for a dollar in for a pound whatever the fuck the expression is because of your own youtube highlight reels and and you're watching your own stuff you just believe your own hype and at the end of the day they don't always make it you know 
there's still a chance. What happens if Cam York doesn't make the NHL? What happens if he just can't hang? What happens if Frost can't hang? What happens if Frost is just an HLer? It's still a chance. It may not be likely, but it's still a chance. Just because you're drafted in the first round doesn't mean you're a fucking home run, especially these late first round picks. Okay, I've been working on some pieces lately that revolve around drafting, and you look at these players and you go back for years here, and they're some guys are just dudes are drafted in the top ten and they just exist. They don't develop because they just can't hang because not everybody makes it the fucking NHL, let alone being the next Claude Drew. And it's just kind of, oh my God, I could rant and rave about this prospect bullshit forever, but it's just about knowing when to strike. And again, this goes back, like, thank Christ Chuck Fletcher is here because he doesn't seem like he's one of these guys that's going to value every single prospect very highly. Thank Christ he's here and goddamn Ted Brown isn't running the team or else we'd have a whole bunch of team full of 21-year-olds that don't know what the fuck they're doing because they're not very good. Yeah, you see, that's where, like, I don't understand where the prospect gurus come into play because they just think that prospect X, who was drafted in top 15, will automatically equate to what his potential says. And we've seen that so many times, but... I just use the St. Louis Blues as an example because you look at their one, two, three centers down the middle, which we previously alluded to as the most important position in hockey. And they signed Tyler Bozak, they traded for Braden Chen, and they traded for Ryan O'Reilly. And in the process, they traded a couple of guys who this fan base in particular would have been losing their shit on. Like you talked about Frost and Farabee and Tage Thompson, who when he was first drafted, people were losing their minds over. But like, it's just so confusing to me that people are just so against advancing the team because I think it kind of comes into this Ron Hexel mentality that the only trade worth making is ripping someone off. And in reality, it's about the trade worth making is one that is even for both sides. And you see that in the NHL. How many deals work out for successful teams where they completely ripped off the person they did business with? I'm sure it happens, and I'm sure anyone listening to this could Google it and find an example that proves me wrong. But more times than not, when you're making deals or trades to make a significant acquisition to their team, there is a risk tied to it and a lot of times the player or assets that you traded to get an impact player will live up to the hype but i just don't understand where this over cautiousness is if that's the term i'm using or if that's the correct term to use came from where yeah i understand that homegrown was like overly aggressive but at the same time there has to be an up uh, a happy medium yeah, and I think the over-conservative uh, approach, the overvaluing of prospects is where at least the, the fan base kind of falls apart here, and it's split, and I think they drank uh, far too much of the, the Hextall Kool-Aid, and they believe their own draft videos and hyping and articles, and, and uh, it just stems from Ron Hextall. You know, they were saw it happen, you know, they saw the, the trade system kind of get abused by Paul Holmgren. And then Hextall came in and said that, you know, trading anybody for a prospect is a bad thing. And now they need to compete and they don't want to trade a prospect. You know, <laughs> it's just, again, I, I think Chuck Fletcher is the guy for this job. He seems 
far more willing to you know, to make not only the good move but the smart move. I mean, this guy's been here for you know a little over a year now, and he's been you know everything he's done has essentially been great. So I, I, I I'm glad he's in charge of this crap because we do not need any of these uh, these Twitter fucks in charge of it because it's just not it's not the right thing to do. You know, you got we just talked about look at all these teams. You know, the the Blackhawks they sure they drafted they had Kane and Taves and 06 and 07 and Keith and Seabrook were there from earlier in the decade and Crawford. But they added the Hosas and the Andrew Lads. You know, they came in and they made impacts. And Crosby, Malk, and Flurry Latang, they added Shatan and Kunitz, you know, to come in there and power forwards. And they were making it happen. You know, and it's just about you can draft and you can keep players and you can keep them, but you can't keep everybody. How many fucking middle of the tier, nothing happening forward prospects do we have in this system right now? You can really make three teams worth. You know, just by these guys they drafted over the last five years. And sure, they're probably may all be AHLers, maybe even NHLers one day. But at the end of the day, they have far more value bringing in somebody like an Alex Petrangelo or maybe even not shooting that high. Just, you know, another Kevin Hayes, somebody that would come in and play a big role and be a key part of your team, because that's where this team is at. And that's where it comes to building dynasties. And that's where it comes to being competitive. You know, you look at these teams. Yeah, they win a cup. And then they went out, you know, look, the Penguins especially have been a team that have been wheeling and dealing for a whole lot of years, you know, trading picks and prospects and bringing in roster players and letting their roster go, yet still being good to draft. You know, everybody they fucking call it from the AHL team is somehow still good, even after they've lost all these goddamn picks, because they make it happen. They're a functioning team from top to bottom. And that's just, you know, and the Flyers have all the makings of that happening. It's just about when it happens. You've got the roster. You've got the prospects. You've got the draft picks. It's a matter of time of your your Marion Hosses, your Chris Kunitzes, your Sergei Gonchars, your Sergei Fedorovs, you know, Jeff Carter, Richards. you got to add those guys to your team. And you're going to lose a couple draft picks and you're going to lose a couple uh, prospects to make it happen, but at the end of the day, you have a better chance to win a Stanley Cup because Frost and Farabee alone are not going to make it happen. You got to add from the outside to be a competitive hockey team in 2020, and hopefully they can, you know, do that. And, and again, Chuck Fletcher's at the helm. I fully trust what he's doing, and I really hope we see some action. I would say this summer, but who the fuck knows, you know, what's going on with the offseason. But, you know, hopefully before next season or maybe even at next trade deadline, we really see this guy go crazy and, and add some legitimate firepower to this team and push him to that next level of not just necessarily a cup team, but, you know, a cup team that could be winning for multiple years, back-to-backs, two, three years. You know, it's what you want to see out of this team. And there's so much goddamn talent here that – internally and externally, they have everything at their disposal to make it happen. Do you think this team still has the potential to be a dynasty? And if you believe so, what would you say to the fans that are scared to trade draft picks or prospects for the betterment of the advancement of this organization? You are so drunk, dude. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But does this team still have the ability to be a dynasty? Yeah. Because, I mean, for all we know, if the season never paused, like, they were on fire. 
you know, I, I think they stood a very good chance of being very competitive in the Eastern Conference this year. You know, whether this was their year or not, I don't know. Whether it still is their year if they pick a play, I don't know. But, you know, the fundamentals are here. And like I've been saying, you know, there's so much here. It's just about adding that piece or two. If you bring in another defenseman, you know, maybe a top four guy, if you bring in another top six forward and a backup goaltender that isn't 35 years old, you know, I think you got something here. You know, <laughs> there, there are pieces that are missing, but they're not nearly as numerous as they were a couple years back. And, you know, guys like Kevin Aza really made up for that. If Nolan Patrick or Morgan Frost can, you know, get their head out of their own ass at this point, like, they could come back and be legit third-line centers and make it happen. So I just, I just want to see something happen soon. There needs to be that next spark to make this team. So I think they could win a cup as they are, but they need their outside, you know, they're, they're, they're pinch hitters to come in and, and make some noise for them. See, the backup goalie thing is something for me that I've thought about a lot because when they first signed Brian Elliott, what was it, a year ago at this time, I was kind of disappointed with the move. One of the few moves that I was disappointed with Chuck Fletcher about, but then he kind of proved me wrong, and I got to say that Elliott proved that when used correctly, he is as good as a backup goaltender as you can get. But when you look at these dynasties, like we touched on the Chicago Blackhawks, like they had Chris Ball Huey as the backup at times, or at least at the first time when they won the Hell, Stanley Crawford Cup. and Emery were fucking phenomenal that year. In 20, was that 13? Yeah, well, it was 2013 because then the Flyers signed Emery the very next year, did they not? Yep. Yes. Yep. Then they, you know, the Boston Bruins had Tuka Rass backing up Tim Thomas. The LA Kings had Jonathan Bernie backing up, uh, what's his face, uh, Jonathan Quick. The Pittsburgh Penguins, they had a ver- they had a variety, but their most recent Stanley Cups, they had Marc-Andre Fleury backing up Matt Murray. So, like, when I look at the Flyers, like, I think that this summer in particular, well, whenever this summer will be, in quotation marks, um, in terms of the NHL offseason, I think the Flyers have a unique opportunity to get really get a quality goaltender. I think I particularly look at Kodobin or Thomas Grice in that respect, given the fact that Yaroslav Halak has re-upped in Boston. But, you know, I really do like Brian Elliott. Because I've said in past shows how much respect I've had for him for what he did in his time in St. Louis as a 1B backup goaltender. But I still think at the end of the day, given the fact that Carter Hart, that even though people may not want to admit it, but is an an unproven goaltender, maybe it's better to invest in in an insurance policy, in a Kadobin or Grice or... You know, I don't want to shit on Elliot, but it is still something to think about when you look at past winners of the Stanley Cup. Elliot is a very interesting case because as much as I don't care for him, I also don't hate him. You know, I think he's a decent backup goalie that occasionally gets blown out of the water, but occasionally can really, you know, steal a game now and again. And by all accounts, he and Carter Hart are great friends, and that's that's great and all. We can all sing Kumbaya later. But in terms of a competitive hockey team, if you come down to a 2010 situation and Carter Hart goes down and you're relying on fucking Brian Elliott and Alex Lyon to get the job done, 
do you trust that tandem? And my answer is no. You know, I, I don't trust either one of them in, you know, big time game clinching, you know, game seven uh, environments like that to kind of make that happen. So I, I do agree. I'm pretty sure they're bringing it back at this point. And we had Bill Meltzer on. He kind of talked about that. And and, and I, I have a feeling that's where this is going to end up going. But, yeah, I, I think the backup role is going to be something very very interesting you know next uh next summer they have a whole bunch of uh veteran guys that are up i listed them off in the other show i believe it's you know lundquist and rene and dubnik and and rask and all these guys that are coming up so maybe they do have an option there if they want to wait one more year to to try and capitalize on a a solid veteran guy uh to, to make something happen but yeah i think the the backup goalie role is one of the ones that kind of flies under the radar because Elliot can be good from time to time, but I, I think it's a positional uh, a position that needs upgrading. Because you've always said that you're you take a great interest in the goaltending position. You love Marty Broder and all of that, but like when you look on dynasties of the last two decades, do you see a loophole where the Flyers can maybe get by with skimping on that position? You know. The Devils did it with Marty Brodeur, and you can make the case that the Carolina Hurricanes did it with getting by with a rookie Cam Ward, or the Colorado Avalanche with Patrick Waugh. Like, do you think the Flyers could get away with skimping on the backup position, rolling the dice with a Brian Elliott with Carter Hart at the helm? Or do you think they really have to make an investment like the Blues did with a Jake Allen when, when Biddington came up, or the Penguins or the Blackhawks did? What do you think the Flyers should do based on history in terms of the backup position? Well, that depends. You know, you can go and be the L.A. Kings and just have a defense that is so goddamn stifling that your goaltender can look good no matter what. I've never been the biggest Jonathan Quick fan. I think the guy's a fraud for all he's worth because he was behind such a good team through the early 2010s. And, you know, they can, if you have a defense that is that lights out, and, and granted, the Flyers aren't quite there, but, you know, there is a more than enough talent on that back end to potentially make up for, uh, you know, uh, you know, the lack of, veteran leadership of the goalies, the lack of overall talent, uh, you know, in Brian Elliott, but you got to commit to building your defense. And that would require, you know, upgrading from Hague and Braun and finding, you know, legitimate guys down there and, and really kind of hoping that Myers and Sanheim take that next step in their development and come leak guys and hope that Niskanen can play at this level for another couple of years, which, you know, is probably unlikely. So, there are ways around it. You have to play an extremely tight defensive system, which isn't impossible, especially not for this group. They played a very solid two-way game all season. But, you know, the only way around shorting your goaltending is going to be through defense by committee. And is that worth it? Or is it just worth going out and finding a backup? It depends on, you know, their cap situations and, and what, you know, Sanum and Myers eventually end up getting paid and if they can wheels their way out of, you know, Gossesbear's contract and JVR's contract. It all comes down to the money and moves that they make surrounding that. But it's not impossible, but I, I definitely think you're better off just kind of cashing in on a two-goalie system because in 2020, goaltending is going to win you more games, right? It, it, it's You can't just have one guy anymore you can't be the Corey Schwab anymore you know the kind of fact of Brodeur for all those years you know when Brodeur is playing 70 games a year it's just it doesn't happen so you know you do need two guys but you can short on that backup guy and maybe get in a Grice who would be a good pinch hitter from time to time 
behind Carter Hart, who takes hopefully a bigger reign next season, and he's no longer afraid to play on the road, you know, if, if that happens. But yeah, team defense would be the way around uh, the the lackluster goaltending. Well, it, it's crazy because I remember like backup goaltending used to just be such a foreign concept. Like yes. you brought up Corey Schwab and like, funny story, I remember when Corey Schwab broke into the NHL with the Toronto Maple Leafs, but he was just such a fucking disaster that he got relegated to the backup role in New Jersey. But it is so true that it used to be such a, it used to be a position that GMs would look at and say, you know, this is the position that I can skimp out on. You know, Brodeur used to play 70 plus games, Evgeny Nabokov used to do the same but you are right in the sense that they're more relied upon. And then you brought up Justin Braun, who I guess it's fair to say that for the entirety of the season, he was the four slash five defenseman. And obviously, if anyone's listened to this show in the past, they know that I like Justin Braun. I like what he brings to the table and that the analytics community will not like. And it's funny because Cork, um, what's his face? Uh, athletic guy um connor Bronman. yeah there you go uh yeah. <laughs> sorry about that but like these guys will not show what a guy like justin braun brings to the table and charlie o'connor is another one from the athletic will say and he's told me in the past like the analytics don't paint the whole story when it comes to a guy like justin braun and you know, he eats so many tough minutes in the defensive zone and with against tough opponents. And when you see, you know, fans, I guess that's the lack of a better term, projecting the Flyers lineup for the 2020-21 season, Dan, I'm sure you've seen this, they just automatically discard Justin Braun. Yep. And they're just like, oh, yeah, that's a $3 million that we have in the bank, no problem, because... Igor Zamula or Mark Friedman or what have you will take his spot for a cheaper price. But I don't think people give Justin Braun enough credit because, A, I think that he's been able to stabilize that third pair with Robert Hag where, you know, I love Robert Hag for what he is, but there's no doubt that Justin Braun has aided him in becoming an everyday third NHL defenseman. And B, you know, just bring up that power, uh, that penalty kill rather, because the Flyers penalty kill was such a fucking disaster for so long. And people, I just think they forget because obviously Kevin Hayes had a direct impact on that and has did Matt Niskan, but Justin Braun is always third in that total totem pole when it comes to those three. And I guess it just kind of irritates me when people just sell Justin Braun down the ri river without replacing him with a legitimate candidate because a Mark Friedman will not get it done. A Cam York two years out of being drafted will not get it done. And, you know, Jim from angry ne negative has, has pointed this out numerous times that people do not give Justin Braun the credit that he deserves. And that correlates with the goaltending because you were saying you know, if they are going to skimp out on a backup goaltender, they're going to be need a better defensive core. Well, it would take a whole lot more than Justin Braun to improve on a Brian Elliott. So I don't know, like I've always been a Justin Braun fan and it just kind of irks me when people just sell him down the river as if he's an everyday third pairing defenseman. I, I think 
Braun is a guy that we're not going to realize what he had until he's gone. And, you know, he plays a style of hockey that doesn't show up on the spreadsheets and thus people don't like him. Right. And that's just what it is. And I've ranted about this a hundred fucking times. I'm not doing it again this week, I promise. But, you know, Friedman is a guy that people put so much stock in. I remember at the beginning of the year, they're like, oh, he can easily be their fifth defenseman right now. They had him penciled in above Marianne Haig and Ghost and probably Braun for that matter. But like, I, I, he's the best defenseman with the Phantoms at this moment. Is that saying a whole lot? No, not really. Is he a guy that's going to be a key NHL defenseman in the future? I really don't think so. You know, he played limited minutes this year when he came up, and he never did anything wrong. I never remember watching any of the games going like, God, look at that Friedman out there fucking everything up. And and I don't see the lot of the Phantoms, but is he an impact kind of guy? I don't think so. And I, I just don't see it. Again, he's still relatively young. Uh, Mark Friedman, how old is he? 24. That's not bad, but you know, as far as defenseman goes, you're starting into your peak at that point, 24, 25, 26, you know, you kind of see what you got at that point. So it's not bad, but I I just don't see again, like the same thing with some of these other players. Like I don't see the spark, you know, I go to a lot of phantoms games, which I miss dreadfully right about now, but uh, yeah, a lot of these phantoms games and, and I watch a lot of Friedman. And like I said, he's not out there making a whole lot of mistakes, but at the same time, like when Phil Myers was down there, he was so far and away better than everybody else on the team. And it wasn't even close. And it was so easy to see. And I never even got that out of Friedman. You know, it's clear that he's probably the best defenseman they have. But their decor is so goddamn bad this season that it's hard to to equate to what that means. So I don't really know what they have in Friedman yet. I don't know if he's ever going to get a legitimate chance. You know, do they let Haig walk and slide Friedman into his spot next season over the summer? Possibly. But I still don't think that this is the guy that's going to be the Messiah on the back end and carry them, you know, further than, than they are. So... I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. But, you know, the defense, especially if somebody like Justin Braun, you know, is going to be overlooked. And next if they let him go and next season you go in with a Gosses Bear Friedman third pair, you're immediately going to notice that something's wrong. Oh, fuck. That would be brutal. Because I think the common problem here is that people just assume that Gosses Bear is going to become something relevant again. Yes. And, and we've seen it. Time and time again, where people will, you know, tweet like trade proposals and it's gossip, you're bringing in something of value. And in my head, I'm just like, what do you think a third pairing defenseman making four and a half million dollars will bring you? And I know that everyone wants to hang on to the 2017 18 season where he scored 66 points, but I've said this time and time again. Even when Gossipier was at his peak, I don't think that he was at a top pairing defenseman level. What would you say about that, Dan? Like, when Gossipier was at his very peak at 17-18, how would you have rated him on your defensive depth chart? Gossip at his absolute peak during his 65-point season, uh, 65 season wasn't even that great. You know, I mean, I think at best, Gosses Bears on this current roster at his absolute peak, he's probably a number five. You know, right now he's behind Provorov, Niskanen, probably both Myers and Sanheim. At least that puts him at number five. 
you know, if you can argue he brings more to the team than Braun would, you know, which is unlikely even at his peak. But, you know, it's just you got a core right now that he no longer fits in. No matter how you fucking cut it, even if he comes back in and he's putting up 65 points, that not a lot of room for him on that blue line. Because he's not, you know, and the third pair guy, you want your two-way guys. You want your Bronze and, and Higgs down there. Maybe not them specifically, but players like that. And Goss's Bear can't play defense even on his best day. So it's just, it's not worth it to have Goss's Bear uh, on, on the roster. And he's a fifth guy, maybe even sixth guy at best. Well, that's what I, like, you just felt it out perfectly. Because even when I look at this team, like, fuck, if Goss's Bear was at his peak, like, who would he, he be ahead of? Like, I remember when he was peaking in 2017 and 2018, I was saying to myself, like, fuck, they should really look at trading him because I think that Ivan Provrov will be better than him. And I think Trevor Sanheim will be better than him. And I don't know where this love equated to that people attach to Shane Goss's beer. Like, okay, I guess that's not really true because I get that people latched onto him following the Andrew McDonald era and the Luke Shen era, era and the Nicholas Grossman era. But at the same time, like anyone who actually watched Shane Gossipier knew that he wasn't a defenseman who could lead the charge defensively because he wasn't a defensive defenseman. He didn't play the penalty kill. He didn't match up against the other team's third pairing. Like for fuck's sakes, we just reviewed the 2015-16 season when the Flyers went into the playoffs against the Washington Capitals and they matched up with Brandon Manning and Radko Gudis against the Ovechkin line. Like, people should realize that that says something about the way Shane Gossespierre plays defense. And I'm not trying to knock the guy because I do think, and I'll say this on the record, that if Shane Gossespierre gets traded to another team in a third-pairing power play specialist role, that he will be able to put up even upwards of 50 points, but I still don't think he will ever equal the value that people have instilled in their head that he did in 2017-18, because like you just outlined, even in 17-18, he wasn't as good as people thought. No. Yeah, and the the, the fear that you're going to trade him away and he's immediately going to become like a top guy, like that's how you sell him first and foremost. You, if you're Chuck Fletcher, you go nudge, you know, somebody else. You go nudge another GM and go, hey, this guy had 65 points three years ago. He'll be bounce, he'll bounce back one day. You wanna, you wanna buy low on that, you know? And that's what you do, like in the right system in the right spot, sure. But at this point in time, the negatives just outweigh the positives. Every single fucking aspect of his game, and and. I don't know. Gossiper needs to go. And and that contract sucks. It's not team friendly. When I wrote that goddamn uh, if the Flyers wish you to compliance by an article a couple weeks ago and people were telling me that Shane Gossespierre is good and he'll be back and I shouldn't ever mention his name. It's like hey, people are fucking ridiculous. And and I asked the question uh, on Twitter and uh, I don't want the tweet pulled up in front of me right now, but it was something along the lines of if Gossespierre was not a flyer, if Gossespierre was a Columbus Blue Jacket, the exact same stats, exact same role, exact same everything. He was just on a different team. And the Flyers acquired him for a third-round pick, like people think he's worth. Would this fan base be happy about that? My guess uh, is probably no. They would lose it. They would hate it, because he's a fucking dude in the middle of a goddamn decline tailspin that he's been in for three years right now. 
well, you had a 65 points two years ago. I had somebody said, well, the Daniel, the risk is worth the reward on this one. Is it? Is bringing in a guy who's three years left at $4.5 million when he's making 12 points as a number six guy worth it? No. You guys are fucking nuts. I don't know why Shane Goss' beer is so beloved and overvalued by a vast majority of this fan base. I don't get it. I never have and I never will. But uh, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. Well, I think it's as simple as the fact that he was the first one to graduate from the AHL slash Miters following the Grossman and Shen and McDonald era on the back end. I truly believe that because he came up in December of 2015, I want to say. And right away, he became the top pairing defenseman with Michael Delzato. Mark Strike got hurt, so he became the top pairing uh the top defenseman on the power play, I may say. And people just, I guess, I don't want to say they got warped in their mind because he was exciting and he was a breath of fresh air from the prior era of, I guess, the tail end of Paul Holmgren. But anyone who watched Shane Goss' beer and said, okay, this is our guy to lead our defensive core into the next era. Like, could you be more delusional? Like, it took me less than two months in 2016-17 to look at Ivan Provorov and say, okay, this guy is far and away better than Shane Goss's beer. And then in 17-18, it took me less than two months to say, okay, maybe he needs more seasoning, but Travis Sanheim is going to be far and away better than Shane Goss's beer. Like, I never found it difficult to look through I guess, in for lack of a better term, the Shane Gossespierre illusion that because he was so gifted offensively that he fooled the average fan into thinking that he was some elite level next coming of Eric Carlson defenseman. But for me, and I think I could say for yourself, it wasn't hard to see passing Gossespierre and notice that he would probably equate to an everyday third pairing defenseman in the NHL. He had that 2030 game run in 2015-16 when he broke in, when he was scoring goals left and right cuz nobody knew who he was and he had that deadly fucking point shot that was winning games in overtime and all this wacky shit he did with those 17 goals. But about 30 40 games after he got called up, everybody scoped him out. You know, everybody knew that he was going to there. He was going to take the point shot on the power play. He was going to, you know, be quarterback and everything back there. And once they figured him out, he was down. What the hell is going on? Sorry, that was a train. <laughs> anyway, My bad. They, <laughs> I, 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 live, I live behind a train tracks here. Sounded like a goddamn jet was taken off. But, um,. <laughs> It, uh, once they figured Goss's bear out, he was never able to recover. In that run in 17-18, when he had those 65 points, he was on the top pair with Ivan Pro, giving power play minutes. He he did the, he did the Jake Voracek tactic of he's just going to rack up a shit ton of assists without doing any actual work. You know, it, once those 20-30 games happened in 15-16, which was five years ago, it was just he hasn't been the same since. And he had 65 points in 17-18. Declined in 1819, fucking totally crapped out in 1920, lost his spot to Robert Haig, of all people, and he just never got back in. It's just what it is. He's just a fucking 
dude. Like, making four and a half million dollars. Making four and a half million dollars for three more years. And I, 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 when it comes to buying them out, I'm going to go back to that, that, that article I wrote about the compliance buyouts. Would you rather have that four and a half million dollars going to Shane Goss's bear for three more years, making fucking, you know, five goals and 12 points? Or would you rather have that four and a half million dollars to lock up Travis Sanheim long term or lock up Phil Myers long term? You know, give them that three or four and a half million dollar contract. I would much rather give it to Sanheim than Dost Despair. And same goes for JVR. Do you want that $7 million going to JVR for three more years? Or do you want to sign Carter Hart for your fucking 10 more years? You know, you got to prioritize his money. Cap's going to get tight. You know, you got to make things count. And Gossesburg contract drives me fucking nuts. His play drives me nuts. His cult following drives me nuts. Everything about him drives me nuts. Yeah, the Shane Gossesbury thing, I will never understand because, well, I, I guess I can kind of understand it in the sense that, like, the average fan has such a shallow view view on hockey that they'll say, okay, he's pounding in power play goals, so he must be good. But then you look at the actual playoff games, and for me, the common... The common theme of a top-pair defenseman is that you have to match up against the other team's top-pair in D. And in Gossespierre, his arguably his best year in 17-18, he wasn't matching up against the Pittsburgh Penguins' top-pair in D in the, con- in the conference semifinals or the conference quarterfinals, I may add, because they actually split up Gossespierre and Provorov heading into the playoffs. So, like, Fuck, man. Like, I know everyone wants to think that defensemen in the new age NHL just need to produce points and to move the puck up the ice, but you still need to be able to defend. And, well, on another note, have you ever seen Gossespierre play a second of the penalty kill? I don't think so. (laughs) See if I can find any numbers. See if he's ever done any penalty killing his whole life. I actually don't think because I remember before the Flyers got Niskanen and Braun, it was often Provorov, Gudis, and then, as painful as it is for me to say, Manning and McDonald, who would play penalty kill. Hmm. I don't see anything at a cursory glance here, which is not overly surprising. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as a one-trick pony goes, that's Shane Goss' bear. And that's probably why people like him so much, because he isn't fucking multidimensional. Like, and he can't play defense. Like, you just mentioned that, you know, part of being a defenseman in 2020 is not actually playing defense. It's about scoring. But um, I don't know. I, I would take a team full of Justin Bronze over a team full of Shane Goss' bears any day. That is a hot take, my friend. And it's the correct take. <laughs> All right, well, we are uh, a little over our time frame. We're going fucking forever here. i got to figure out how to do all this editing now. We're having some audio issues. But, um, I don't know. Probably be back with an anger negative. Probably not this week anymore. Maybe next week. Uh, I don't know what the hell's going on after that. Usually promote shows here. But there's nothing to promote these days. So, uh, plenty of articles up on Brotherly Puck. Uh, at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore Pod, at Anger Negative. Be sure to subscribe to any of those shows if you do not already. All the links are on the Twitter pages. Uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? 
You can find me at Demargo 25 All right, everybody. Well, until next time, goodbye and good night.